You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. All of you know this already, uh, but I think it's like a hundred or so people uh, are moving to Austin uh, every day, uh, which is crazy when you think about it. Like a hundred people today, a hundred people tomorrow, a hundred people Tuesday, you know, Mopac stays the same number of lanes, but a hundred people Wednesday, a hundred people Thursday, it just keeps going. We live in this city that people want to come to because it's, it's really a city of opportunity. It's a city of achievement. Uh, people come here to start a business. People come here to get a, uh, a higher degree. Uh, people come here to hone their, their craft as an artist or to take a new job. Uh, and, and, and one of the, one of the uh, side effects, I think, of living in a city like Austin that's full, really, of really talented people, highly educated people, highly motivated, highly capable people, is that you have, in some ways, a heightened sense of competition, right? A, a heightened sense of even comparison. You look around and there's this, there's this internal pressure that I, I'm here, I got to make a mark on the world. I got I to gotta, I gotta hit it big, or I, I at least got to have a life that, that keeps up uh, with my peers who all seem to be living the good life in some way. And so the, the, the ethos in our city, I think, is one of striving, like striving to keep up, striving to get ahead, striving to have a life that's at least as awesome as everyone else's life seems to be. I've noticed this just in small talk. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question that's going around lately in conversations, and maybe you've noticed it in conversations. And, the, and this is the question that I've heard multiple times. Where are you going this summer? Yeah, wh- what are your plans? Where are you headed this summer? Now, assumed in the question is that I have some sort of awesome vacation plans uh, for the summer, because doesn't everyone? And I've noticed this internal pressure lately that when I get asked that question, I want to have something really cool to say. Because I don't want to just say, you know what, we're just hanging around here. I'm going to do some yard work, maybe catch a movie or two, eat at P. Terry's. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) That sounds so lame. And so it's weird. Ironically, I feel this internal striving to keep up when I'm talking about vacation. Like the very thing that's supposed to give me rest makes me restless and angsty. We're striving just in our vacation. So we all know what it's like to strive in life, to keep up, to get ahead. Like to sh- we, we have this sense, like, I got to prove myself, justify myself, show that I'm happy and satisfied and successful in life. And then we look at Instagram, and everybody looks happy and successful, and we're like, oh my gosh, and we got to strive. And it's exhausting in so many ways. This summer, we are, uh, we're, we're going to spend 10 weeks in the last half of, uh, of, of the book of Genesis, and we're specifically going to focus on the lives of Jacob. Uh, for five weeks, and and then we're going to look at his son Joseph uh, for the the other five weeks. And these narratives about Jacob and Joseph are are in many ways characterized by striving and struggle. There's conflict, there's sibling rivalry, there's family sinning against each other, which leads uh, to suffering. When Jacob's life begins, actually before Jacob's life begins, you heard it in this story today, today, before he's even born, there's struggle and striving that's already happening. Look at Genesis 25. Look at verse 19 in Genesis 25. Let's get into the Jacob story. It starts with Isaac, though, his father. Genesis 25, 
19. It says, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Now, in Genesis, whenever you read that phrase, these are the generations of, it signals that you're, you're starting a new section in Genesis. The book of Genesis is a record of 10 successive generations. So whenever you see that phrase, you see it 10 times in Genesis, new section. So in Genesis 5, you see these are the generations of Adam. In Genesis 6, you see these are the generations of Noah. When you read this phrase, these are the generations of Isaac, all it means are is the, the, the stories you're about to hear are about all the people that came from Isaac. These are the story of Isaac's people, the generations of Isaac's. Remember, Isaac was the son of Abraham. Two summers ago, we preached through the life of Abraham. And I don't know if you remember, but Abraham waited a long, long time for the promised son, Isaac. And, and, and Isaac, God finally gave the son. And now we're picking up where that story left off. We're, we're picking up with the generations of Isaac, the people that came from him. Here's all I want you to know about this phrase, though, before we start. Generations come, generations go, but God stays the same, right? God is unchanging. God is fulfilling his plan. And so we'll look at Jacob and Joseph this summer, but God is the star. God is the hero of the story. He is unchanging. He's at work fulfilling his plan in the midst of the generations, no matter what. All right, so this is primarily a story about God, how he works, how we're to relate to him. Now look at verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And this is a big issue over and over in the book of Genesis, infertility. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, then why is this happening to me? In other words, what is going on inside of me? Uh, Rebekah, we come to find out, had experienced almost 20 years of infertility, 20 years of not being able to have children, and, and now she is pregnant, and she's not pregnant with just one child, she's pregnant with two, she doesn't know it yet. Uh, and she's got twins, and this should be a cause of rejoicing. But it says here in the text that the children struggled together within her. Literally, it says they were smashing one another inside of her, which is just an amazing image for brothers, right, when you think about it. Before they're even born, they are smashing each other. They're trying to kill each other in the womb. It's sibling rivalry before they're even born. Conflict is already happening. Now, this is happening inside her, but it's painful for Rebecca, and she has no idea why pregnancy is so painful. She's never been pregnant before, but she didn't think it would be this uncomfortable, and she does not know what's going on. There's no modern medicine. She can't schedule an OB appointment, get an ultrasound. What is happening inside of me? Uh, And so she does. Actually, the only thing she can do, she prays. She is a woman who believes in God, who walks with God, and who believes that God's involved in her daily life. And so she prays. She inquires of the Lord. Look at the end of verse 22. Look what it says. It says, so Rebecca went to inquire of the Lord, and this is what the Lord said to her. The gracious Lord that we serve gave her a word. He said, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one, uh, the, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve 
the younger. So God uh, interprets for Rebecca what's going on inside of her, and he tells her some key things about her pregnancy, and we should pay attention to what he says because actually what God says here sets up the whole Jacob story. And the first thing he says is two nations are in your womb. In other words, Rebecca, your pregnancy is not just about you and your family. Uh, it's, it has national implications. Two nations are going to come from these little boys that are inside you right now, the Israelites and the Edomites. And then the next thing he says about them is they will be divided. In other words, these boys are going to go different directions and these nations are going to go different directions and there will be conflict between these two nations. Rebecca, you're already experiencing the conflict. That's why it's so painful right now. But then look at the last thing he says, this last sentence that God says in verse 23. He says, the older brother will serve the younger brother. The older shall serve the younger. So the younger brother will have the prominent position in the family. Like the younger brother will have the top spot in the family. Now we read that today and we think, well, that's no big deal. I guess that's just how it'll go. I guess that's how it'll turn out. I guess the younger brother will be more successful. I guess the younger brother will just be more capable in some way. Doesn't bother me. Listen, the, the original readers of this uh, text would not just gloss over that. They would stop there and they would be surprised by that statement. They might be offended by that statement. Because in the ancient Middle East, uh, they couldn't think of any other way than for the oldest son to have the top spot in the family. It was the law of primogeniture. It was just assumed. It was taken for granted. The oldest son is the big dog. He's the top one. And that's how it would be. And so for us, we don't really understand it. But it it would be like saying to us today... um, Last, last place wins the prize, right? Or, or the least experienced employee should be the boss. It's nonsense to us. And that's, that's what it sounds like in this text, that, that, that the older would serve the younger. And so with one sentence, God introduces the tension of the entire story. The older will serve the younger. Uh, th- that means there's going to be conflict between these two brothers, And there is, right away, right from their birth. And I want you to see that Jacob, the younger brother, steps into this conflict striving. He steps into the struggle, striving, trying to keep up with his older brother. Let's look at their birth. Look at verse 24. Genesis 25, verse 24. When her days to give birth, when Rebekah's days to give birth were completed. Behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau, which actually means hairy. <laughs> and if I were Esau, I would, want my, I would have wanted my parents to put a little more thought into my name than that, right? Get one of those baby names books. There's like 100,000 names in those things, mom and dad. Do some research. At least pray about it. That's not what Isaac and Rebecca do. They're like, hey, he's a hairy little guy. Let's name him Harry. H-A-I-R-Y. And he's like, thank you, mom and dad, for that wonderful name. And so little Harry is born. And then his brother comes out. Verse 26. The first, uh, I'm sorry, verse, yeah, verse 26. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's 
heel. So his name was called Jacob. What a scene. I would love to have been a part of this moment. What a scene this must have been. There was no separation between Esau and his little brother. He's not even fully born yet, and there's this little hand holding onto his ankle, onto his heel as he comes out. And so they named the little brother Jacob, which sounds like the Hebrew word for heel. Uh, Now, we know that Jacob's name would later be associated with deception, a a deceiver, one who uses deception to to win the fight, to gain an advantage over his opponent. And it's kind of like a wrestling match. If you imagine two wrestlers circling one another on the mat, they are both trying to take uh, their opponent to the ground. And one of them might fake left and then go right and grab the heel or the ankle of, of his opponent to try to trip him up. So he uses deception to trip up his opponent. And that's what Jacob's name begins, it comes to be to mean. One who uses a fighter, who uses deception to trip up his opponent to his own advantage. All I want you to see in this scene right now, though, is that Jacob is striving. He is striving. He is literally on the heels of his brother. He's trying to keep up. He's grasping for a better position, even in his birth. Now, what's interesting, you may have noticed this when the the scripture was read, is that the narrative skips over the entire childhood of Jacob and Esau. You get to verse 27, and all of a sudden they're grown up. And so we don't know anything about their childhood, which is weird. But I, I started reading verse 27 and 28 this week, and I thought, you know, you can actually learn a lot about their childhood just from these two verses, and you can begin to draw some conclusions about what their growing up was like. Look at verse 27. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. And so Esau was kind of an outdoorsman. He he liked hunting. He probably liked camping. He liked sleeping out under the stars. He was a man of the field. Jacob was a little more refined. But I don't want you to think that Jacob was soft. He was not soft in any way. He was a, a herdsman. He was probably a shepherd. Uh, he, he, he was worked with livestock, which was one of the reasons he dwelt in tents. He was moving around uh, with the herds. But it says he was a quiet man. He was kind of detached. He kind of kept to himself. I think he was a guy that you didn't really know what he was thinking. Uh, he kind of had that maybe, maybe kind of a blank stare. You weren't sure, does he like me or not? And this week, for some reason, I keep thinking about Michael Corleone, uh, the youngest brother in The Godfather. And I think that's Jacob. Because if you've seen that movie, you know Michael Corleone. He's the youngest brother, and he's really quiet. But he's brilliant, and he's calculating, and he's ruthless, isn't he? He is a Jacob. That's Jacob. He's brilliant. He's calculating. He's ruthless. He might be quiet. He might like to live inside, but he's not soft. He's tough. Now, Look at verse 28. This is, this is a crucial verse to help us understand this relationship. Verse 28. Isaac, who's the father, loved Esau, the older brother, because he ate of his game. But Rebekah, the mother, loved Jacob, the younger brother. I think this verse tells us everything we need to know about Jacob and Esau's childhood, doesn't it? We can imagine what it's like because the parents are playing favorites with their boys, which is so painful, so hurtful, so confusing for a child. 
Jacob knows that Isaac, the, his father, loves his brother more than him. and has, He knows that Esau has the father's approval and he does it. He knows it. Do you know what that does to a son who's uncertain that his father loves him and approves of him? It causes, causes a son either to rebel against that father or it causes a son to strive, to prove himself, to earn first place in the eyes of his father. And I think the favoritism of Isaac does that to Jacob. I think it just fuels his fire as a striver. It makes him even more of a striver. And so we come to verse 29, which is one of the pivotal moments in this relationship, and it's actually a pivotal moment in the Bible. It helps us understand the Bible in many ways. Look at verse 29. Look what happens. It says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. He was famished. He was just about to faint from hunger. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted And therefore, his name was called Edom, which means uh, red. Uh, In in this moment, the only thing Esau uh, can think about is how hungry he is. He's like a high school football player at a pizza buffet. That's that's Esau in this moment. We used to leave practice and we'd head up to Gaddy's or CeCe's and we would own that buffet. We just, I want all the food that I can have right now. And that's all we could think about. That's exactly what Esau is thinking about in this moment. And you know what? This is the moment that Jacob has been waiting for. Jacob now is ready to pounce. Jacob is ready to go for the heel and trip of his brother. And it's interesting that Esau, the skillful hunter, is about to get hunted. And he's about to fall into the trap of an even more skillful hunter, his brother Jacob. Look at verse 31. Jacob said to him, sell me your birthright now. Like right now, sell me your birthright. Now the birthright, uh, we don't have this in our day, so to speak, but just, it just signifies the rights of the firstborn. Uh, the firstborn had uh, greater material blessings, but also greater spiritual blessings. That was the birthright. So the firstborn had the rights to double the portion of the inheritance, double the land, double the wealth, Uh, material blessings, but they also were going to be the head of the the family. They were going to be the spiritual leader of the family, so spiritual blessings. So you can see why Jacob wanted this. It was a a benefit uh, to have it. And so he says to Esau, sell me your birthright, and I'll give you some soup. But no birthright, then no soup for you, right? No Seinfeld fans? (laughs) No soup for you? Okay. This is such a calculated moment. Like, he had been waiting for this. He knew his brother's weakness. He knew his vulnerabilities. He knew that Esau was a slave to his appetites, and he pounced on that. He totally took advantage of his brother. He had studied him, and he took advantage of his brother. And look what happens in verse 32. Esau said to him, I'm about to die. I'm starving to death here. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. In other words, swear an oath. Let's make this thing legally binding. Let's not just make it a conversation. I want you to give me an oath and make this thing binding. Swear to me now. And so Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate. Listen how carnal and sudden this is. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went away. 
He had his meal, he hit the road, and then it says, the, the narrator gives us some commentary, thus Esau despised his birthright, which just means he treated his birthright as worthless. He didn't even care about it. He just tossed it aside. Now listen, at birth, Jacob had been striving to catch up with his brother. Here in this scene, he finally passes him up. He finally, he finally gets what he wants, the birthright, first place, he passes him up. And you would think he would be satisfied, wouldn't you? You would think, all right, I finally got what I was striving for. The interesting thing, though, is he doesn't seem to be satisfied because we'll see in the weeks ahead that he goes on striving. He goes on using deceit to try to prove himself, to gain first place. He keeps on striving. Uh, I think it's exhausting in Jacob's life because it's, it's, it's a sinful striving. He's just striving for himself, for his, for his own agenda, for his own gain, for his own glory. It's self-centered striving, and everything terminates on himself, and it's exhausting. Now, what would be the answer to that? What would be the solution to this kind of self-centered striving? What does Jacob need to get out of this cycle of striving? I think he needs a word of grace. I think he needs a word from God to tell him, hey, there's someone underneath and behind your life that is greater than you. I I think he needs a word from God to remind him who he is and where his hope is really found. And the amazing thing is we've already seen this word of grace in our text today, haven't we? We've already seen the solution to Jacob's striving in our text today. Remember what God said to Rebekah before her sons were born. She said, the older will serve the younger. That phrase brought tension to the story, but it also is the solution to the striving that Jacob is feeling. The older will serve the younger. God chose the younger. God said, I'm going to go with Jacob. I'm going to go with Jacob as the promised son to fulfill my promises through. Why did God choose Jacob? Is it because he was more worthy than Esau? Smarter, more savvy, tougher, more righteous in some way? He wasn't a meathead like Esau, just caring about food. He actually cared about the promises of God. Is that why God chose Jacob? No. Listen to what Romans 9 tells us about this. This is the Apostle Paul in his great gospel argument in the book of Romans, this is his commentary on this little scene. Paul says, when Rebekah had conceived children by our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, had not done anything either good or bad, so that it, they're not born yet, they haven't performed in any way, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other, in other words, in order that God's sovereign purpose might be carried out, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. So God's choice of Jacob is not based on birth order. God's choice of Jacob is not based on any human custom. God's choice of Jacob is not based on performance in any way. He's not even born yet. God's choice of Jacob is not based on any form of human worthiness, is it? His choice of Jacob is based only on God's sovereign grace. His sovereign grace. Esau was not worthy of the birthright. He proved that. He didn't even want it. All he could focus on was food. 
what happens in the moment. He didn't care about the purposes of God. But listen, Jacob was not worthy of the birthright either, was he? Like, instead of waiting on God to fulfill God's promise and God's ways, he acted presumptuously. He took things into his own hands. He climbed the ladder to the top by stepping all over his brother. He should have loved his brother, but he discarded his brother, didn't he? See, Esau despised the birthright. Jacob despised his brother, which is way worse. He, he, dis, he, he tossed him aside like he didn't even matter. Jacob was not worthy of the birthright. God's choice is based solely on his sovereign grace. Grace is such an interesting thing. No human being would have ever come up with it. Like no human culture operates on grace or would have come up with it because human nature is opposed to grace because grace says crazy things like the last can be first, right? It says that undeserving people can be blessed. That's us. It says that sinners can be forgiven. That's us. It says that enemies of God can become the family of God. That's a word of grace. And God has a long history of actually choosing the, the, old, the younger over the older, the, the least over the greatest, right? He chose Cain, or he chose Abel over Cain. He chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau. This summer we'll see he chooses Joseph over his older brothers. He chose David, the youngest brother, to be king. In the New Testament, who does he choose to be the savior of the world? Lowly, poor, Jesus of Nazareth. Not an impressive guy, in an earthly sense. He was despised and rejected of men, Isaiah says. And then Jesus comes as the Savior of the world and shows the world what grace really is. Why? Because he's the firstborn son of God, and yet he gives up his birthright uh, for the good of, of others. Uh, he, he, he gives up what was rightfully his to serve others. He's not like Jake, uh, Esau and Jacob. Esau gave up what was rightfully his. Why? To serve his own appetite. Jacob grasped for what was not rightfully his. Why? To serve his own ambition. Jesus gives up the birthright. Why? To serve us. He makes himself last. He makes himself servant of all when he dies on the cross. But then God doesn't leave him there. God, after that, after he empties himself, raises him up and exalts him and gives him the name that's greater than every other name. And so the last actually becomes the first again. The birthright comes back to him. And what does he do with the birthright? He says, I want y'all to share with me in it. I want you to share my inheritance. That's sovereign grace. That's the good news of the gospel. In our little story today, I think Jacob is striving uh, for the love and the approval of his father, but he, also, he already has the love and approval of God the Father. He, he has the greatest love and approval. He's actually striving to get what he already has, what, what already belongs to him. God had already said, hey, look, you're the chosen son. I'm gonna fulfill my promises through you. You don't have to strive for that. I'm already gonna do it. Just wait on me. Just rest in that. It's interesting when you think about the name Jacob. Do you know what the name Jacob originally uh, meant? before he got it associated with deception. It meant God will protect. It meant literally God on your heels. God as your rear guard. God behind you, looking out for you, protecting you. What a name. Like if Jacob had only lived into that name, 
God will protect me. That's who I am. God is at my heels. It would have saved him a life of, of sinful striving that just wore him out. Painful striving. Uh, we have, uh, as a <clears throat> society, been, I think, tragically reminded this week uh, that getting to the top of the ladder is not the answer to our striving. Uh, we've seen that success does not necessarily answer the struggles in, in our soul. Uh, I think we've all been brokenhearted over uh, what, what happened with Kate Spade and, and with Anthony Bourdain uh, this week. Uh, these are two people who really showed us much of the beauty uh, in, in the world. Uh, they were, everyone knows them, they were highly successful. Uh, but that didn't take away their struggles. Um, and, and Brene Brown um, wrote a short piece about them this week, and I think that Brene Brown had some, some real wisdom about them. <clears throat> and listen to what she says. She says, everyone has a story or a struggle that will break your heart. And then she says, and if we're really paying attention, most people have a story or a struggle that will bring us to our knees. In other words, even successful people struggle. The success does not take away the striving and the struggle in our soul. And we struggle. Even successful people feel hopelessness. And what she's saying is that ought to drive us to our knees because there's only one in the universe who can deal with our struggles and our strivings. There's only one in the universe who can ultimately satisfy our strivings. Our God, in his sovereign grace, says to us, no matter who you are, he says you matter. Like, you matter. No matter what you're going through, you matter. I love you. I created you. I see your pain. I see your struggle. I see your striving to prove yourself. I see your sin and your rebellion. But guess what? I still love you, and I've provided a way for you to, to come back to me. Like to be healed, to be made whole again, to have hope. I've sent Jesus in my sovereign grace to be rest for your soul. You can see striving and know that I'm God because Jesus is the answer to your striving. That's what God says to us. This summer, as we look at the lives of Jacob and Joseph, we need to know that these are two imperfect people. You're, we're going to look at Jacob and you're going to think, I don't, I don't like that guy at all. I don't want to be like that guy at all. But it's interesting, God in his sovereign grace brought Jesus to us through their family. Through their striving, through their suffering, through their sin, God was working out his redemptive plan for the world in spite of their sin, in spite of their circumstances. That's sovereign grace. Jacob and Joseph, are, are, they truly are emblems, symbols of the sovereign grace of God, just like you and me. I, I want to invite you to read maybe more deeply, uh, these, these passages in Genesis this summer. Um, we're going to be looking at some select narratives from Genesis 25 to Genesis 15. We've put together a reading guide um, that we'll have in the back. We'll, hand, we'll have some guys handing these out after church if you want to grab one. It's just a simple way to be reading more closely in these chapters. Um, and each week you'll read two or three chapters leading up to the sermon for that week. Uh, it, it's very self-explanatory. It'll have, you know, week one, it's just this first page. And this is designed just to give you three touch points with the text each week. You can do it any time during the week you want. The first day, the instructions are in here. The first day, you just read the, the chapters. The second day, you read the chapters, and there's some study questions to help you dig a little deeper. 
And then the third day, there's some reflection questions to help you apply uh, these chapters to your life. And so if you're interested in reading along with us this summer, uh, again, these will be in the back of the church uh, on your way. Don't forget to grab one uh, on your way out, okay? Let's pray and thank the Lord for his word uh, to us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.